All right. Why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 4, please? Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And the message is entitled, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. Paul has um, given to the Philippians here a general exhortation to follow godly examples as evidence of ongoing Christian maturity in the previous chapter from verse 17 to 21. Now Paul based on that general exhortation, moves on to deal with the specific exhortations that follow, plural, from verse 1 down to 9. Remember, Paul has said to the Philippians um, that there's three important things regarding the Christian life in this letter. And now he's coming to the fourth. The first one was that Christ is the believer's life, chapter 1, verse 21. Second, Christ is the believer's mind, chapter 2, verse 5. Thirdly, Christ is the believer's goal, chapter 3, verse 10. And now, Christ is the believer's strength, chapter 4, verse 13. Four little chapters. Of course, it was all one complete letter. We've broken it up into chapters to facilitate defining the verses, but very small letter. You know, Paul the Apostle cried out in Romans O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 7, 24 through 25. As long as I trust in myself and believe I can do it, I will fall flat on my face every time. I must reckon my own man dead and continue to reckon him dead as he has been reckoned dead when I accepted Christ so I can walk in the Spirit, trust the power of the Spirit to do the things that only God can do through the Spirit. And if I trust myself... It, it won't work, whether it be in, uh, in marriage, whether it be in any area of life. It makes no difference. Now, Paul deals with the specific exhortation of Christian unity here, which is characterized by three things. Let me read verse 1 through 3. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved, I implore Eudia and implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labor with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so the specific exhortation here to the Christians, Christian unity, characterized by the following. First, Christian unity can exist only in depending on Jesus by the believer. Verse 1. The only way unity can work. Secondly, Christian unity can be disrupted by carnal believers. Verse 2. And thirdly, Christian unity can be restored by believers. Verse 3. Let's begin here with Christian unity can exist only in depending on Jesus by the believer. Look at verse um, 1 here. The Apostle Paul declared the unity of believers belonging to the same kingdom. He says, therefore, Paul comes to the connective conclusion, if you will. The word therefore means that which uh, is or in so much that. The implication being what he is about to say is based on what he has stated in the preceding verses from 17 to 21. Verse 1 is transitional. It looks back and it looks also forward to the foundation of what Paul will be asking them. Paul just mentioned three things they had in common as believers in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3. They were citizens of heaven in verse 20. They were waiting for the Savior uh, and King, verse 20, and they are anticipating the redemption of their bodies in verse 21. Common things that all believers have. Everything that, everything that we agree upon, as we're going to see, is because what God has revealed to us. We agree. We can disagree and we can have different opinions on different things and have likes and dislikes. But in terms of what the Bible teaches and what it reveals, 
there can be no disagreement. We have the same book. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the unity of believers belongs to the same family. That's why the unity. A family is, you know, they can fight and insult each other and beat each other up, but you have somebody step in, they're all over on the other guy. That's why domestic calls for policemen are so dangerous. Because they're killing each other and fighting and beating each other back, and the cop steps in, everybody will turn on them. It's the most dangerous. Listen to his words, my beloved, and long for brethren. Paul addressed the believer with great affection, my beloved. He considered the Philippians his own. The word my indicates his personal relationship to them. They had been fathered spiritually by Paul as he preached the gospel of Philippi. He considered the Philippians also dear to him. Not just that they were the result of his ministry, but to him personally. Um, the word beloved, agapitos, it's a term of endearment. It's found twice. He says it twice. You as a parent, when you want to express something to your child, uh, whether it be to grab his attention for the seriousness of it, or you want to express the understanding of how much you love him, there's a repetition at times. And even what changes the tone of voice. Now when we read these letters, we can't hear the tone of voice on Paul. Okay, But as we do the study of the Word, we can sense his own inflection as he's writing this letter. Even as when you write a letter, when you're writing something serious, or you want to express love or devotion or commitment, or that you'll be there to help. You know, there's, there's an attitude and a tone that you're putting that down, but you can't hear it in words on paper. They were the object of Paul's love. Notice Paul addressed the believer with great anticipation. He says, and long for. And the phrase means um, a long desire to see them again. The word appears in this form only this time in the New Testament. It's like you're just, you're waiting, you can't wait. And it's just, you count down the days or, you know, you just, you're, you're, you're anxious for it to happen. Paul had already expressed his yearning for them when he wrote in chapter 1, verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And for Epaphroditus also longing for the Philippians because they were sad that he had almost died in chapter 2, verse 26. Same word, 1, 8 and 2, 26. Here it is again. This longing was mutual. As we read chapter 1, verse 26, he says um, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. So when there is a deep affection of one person to the other or a group or whatever, there is a, 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 a communicating, there is a planning at times to meet one another, and there is a great anticipation when that meeting comes. This is what he's talking about. Remember, it's been about 10 years since he established the ministry. Uh, in 10 years, you get to know a lot of people. You go through a lot of things together. You, you deal with people in good times, bad times. Um, that's the whole aspect of our life as Christians. Notice Paul addressed the believer also with great admiration, brethren. This is all their unity, their bond. Adelphus. Literally from the same womb, the word can be used for national ancestry, where you will call somebody a brother because you're of the same nation, um, people of the common country or uh, camaraderie or whatever it may be. It can be used different in context, but it's that, it's that unifying factor that it communicates. And the word is used by Paul for being in the family of God. They were born again by the Spirit of God. They were spiritually brother and sisters having the same spiritual father, the same family. And so Paul addressed the believers with great celebration. He says, my joy and crown. You know what he's talking about if you're a parent. You tell your kids, you know, you just, you just make my day, son. 
You have just changed my life when you came into my life. I'd do anything for you. I'd die for you. You express your, your love, your devotion. The value that, you, that those people or that person has towards your life. This is what he's doing here. The Philippians words, personal delight. Once again, the word my. The word joy means gladness. He experienced because of them. The joy that you as a parent experience with the children, even through all the stuff they put you through, they make you so mad sometimes, and yet when all is said and done and you have some time with them, you say, man, you just have brought so much joy. It's just a joy to watch you. Because you don't keep a ledger. You deal with the issues, but you focus on your love for them and what they do for you. This is Paul. Joy is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, agape love, in Galatians 5.22. There's only one fruit, agape. Everything else after that's a manifestation of agape love. The word joy and rejoice appears 17 times in the epistle, as we shared in the introduction. This is the epistle of joy. But not the Philippians. It's Paul. And he's not in the Hyatt. He's in prison. All right? So Christian joy has nothing to do with my feelings, my emotions, my circumstances, or my situation. It has to do with my relationship to Jesus Christ. And my abiding in Him and growing in Him and tr trusting Him and, grow and uh, uh, asking Him to direct me and to guide me. Not my feelings, not my emotions. The Philippians were the first converts, as you know, in Europe on the second missionary journey. Paul received the calling there as he went through Asia Minor. Uh, he saw a vision of man from Macedonia. He says, come over and, uh, to Macedonia to help us in Acts 16, 8 through 9. God directed and guided him. Paul looked forward to receiving the reward. Notice that right here. For his ministry in the saints at Philippi, the beam of seat of Christ. The beam of seat of Christ is where the believer will get rewarded for his motive. Not what he did or how much he did, but why and how he did it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 12 through 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and also Romans 14, 10. That will happen when we're raptured. Our bodies will be glorified and we'll go before the beam of seat of Christ. The word there crowned is Stephanos. It was a garland or a wreath that was given as a prize for that uh, first place, the victor. Uh, you get the word Nike from it. And... Uh, like the Olympic Games. Uh, or you could wear this at a banquet. But here Paul is using in terms of that day of reward at the Bema Seat. Paul said earlier in chapter 2, verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in that day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. That what I've done and what I'm doing and what I propose to do, that I do it for the right motive. I'm doing it by the direction of God so that when I get there, I may have some reward. But I don't serve the Lord for a reward, but I want to make sure my heart and my motive is right. I'm not here to impress you or anybody else, or you should not be impressing anybody else. But God sees everything. He knows everything. And He's the one that's going to judge you. And reward, not anybody else. To the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, the same way he said, For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you at the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? <laughs> now we're all there. That's the joy. And we are, we're there and, and, and we're with the Lord. And, you know, we see that those that have abided in Christ and they're there and Christ will reward us, will be his bride. Paul was looking forward to that. Notice the um, apostle Paul still there in verse 1 declared the unity of believers belonging to the same Lord. Another factor of unity. Paul stated that their practice was to be, he says, so stand fast. This is the exhortation 
and command to ensure Christian unity. The Philippians were not like-minded, but selfish, conceited, self-interest. We covered that chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. He rebuked them after the example of Christ. It's the epistle of joy for Paul, but for this guy, it's a letter of rebuke to them. They had one big problem, unity. And he's going to name two ladies that were really bad in this site. And he's going to call them out. The phrase stand fast means to be stationary, to stand firm with the idea of persevering. This is the present act of continuous, not sporadically, but on every time. The phrase, a picture of two things. First, a soldier standing firm in his post regardless of the pressure to abandon it. If you've served in the military, you've been in war zone, you know what Paul is talking about. The city was populated by Roman veterans. So this was real meaningful to the people as they read this. Epaphroditus surely had been a good spiritual soldier, serving Paul coming near to death in chapter 2, verse 25. Committed. But secondly, it's a picture of a runner not deviating from the course marked out for him. Disciplined. Paul has talked about that. He says, brethren, do not, I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to the things that are ahead, I press towards the goal for the pride for the upper call of Christ and of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. So Paul uses many of these metaphors, athletic and also soldier, for the Christian life. Notice Paul stated their position in the Lord, beloved. That's key. The unity could only exist by standing firm and unmovable in Jesus, being spiritually mature. He's dealt with maturity, the previous chapter. Maturity. The preposition in speaks of the sphere of life and existence. In Christ, you're in the yard. There's fences around it. You're only in the yard as long as you're inside that fence. You're not to see how close you can get to the fence before you're out of the yard. You're not to be climbing the fence and trying to walk the top of it. But staying in the sphere of Christ. Their unity was in having the same Lord, Kurios, the one who they belong to, the owner, the master of their person, the one whose will was to be obeyed as well as seeking and doing his will. The one who deserves all honor and all reverence. He finishes with the word beloved again, agapitos, repeated. The term of endearment. He's expressing how much he loves them. He's pouring out his heart. He's spanking them. He's a loving father. You guys need to correct this. You guys need to get it together. This double emphasis on the word gives emphasis on the motive of love behind the command that the apostle's going to give. He had only their good in mind. You as a parent, when you do this to your child when they're young, you have the best in mind for them, but they think you're the most terrible parent. You just want to ruin their life. You know that because you used to think that when your dad got you. It's part of immaturity. Thank God we have mature parents that they weren't swayed by our crying or by anything else. But they were, they loved us enough to stick to it. Without gas, a car won't work. And so unity in the church 
The church won't work without unity. Many times those who come to Christ have a closer and a more um, endearing relationship with those of the family of God than their natural families. It's always been the case throughout church history. This certainly was true of the early church as Jews came to Christ and um, they were considered dead by their their, uh, Jewish parents and families. And it's the same still today when a Jew converts. They consider them as dead. They have a funeral form. This is still true in many parts of the world when a person becomes a Christian, maybe in communist countries or Muslim countries or um, uh, very Catholic countries too. Uh, there's a severe persecution and uh, even retaliation. This at times happens in what seems to be normal good families until a person accepts Jesus and then it seems that he's a traitor or she's a traitor and an enemy of the family. Jesus divides. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 34-37. Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and man a man's enemy will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's Jesus saying? You have to hate your family? No, what he's saying is if you don't love me first, you won't be able to know really how to love them. Blood family is not thicker than the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? My love for Jesus is supreme above anybody. That way I can love my mom, my dad, my wife, my children, and you. That's the priority, the vertical first, so the horizontal gets taken care of. The joy is in seeing sinners come to Christ, it's beyond words. Not just that we will be rewarded by Christ, but knowing that all their sins are forgiven, knowing that they have the Holy Spirit now to live life out, knowing that they will be used by God to save others. What a joy. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise, Proverbs 11.30 says. When's the last time you spoke to somebody about Christ, witnessed to them? When's the last time you led someone to Christ? What happens, the longer you walk with God, the more you isolate yourself from non-believers in the world. You have to be careful. The only unity God honors is in the Lord Jesus. Mere unity of denomination is carnal. Mere unity of movement in the movement of Calvary Chapel or the venue, whatever it is, that's superficial. Mere unity and love at the expense of doctrine, that's deception and treacherous to Christ. But unity in the person and work of Jesus Christ is true unity. We are to agree on Christ and Christ alone, who he is, what he's done. Jesus said in John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, circle that, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. The key is abiding. Don't tell me you've been born again. Are you abiding? That's important. So Christian unity can exist only in depending on Jesus by believers. It's the only way we can get along, ladies and gentlemen. If you think we can get along without Jesus, you're smoking something. There's no way. Secondly, Christian unity can be disrupted by carnal believers. Look at verse 2. The Apostle Paul names two women as he exhorted believers to stand united fast in the Lord. The exhortations to the corporate body, all of them, but now he fingers two of them. I implore Odia 
and Syntyche. The two names do not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. We know nothing about them except that they must have had some falling out. Be in their personal lives or in ministry, we're not told. Their names do not match their conduct, though. Yodia means fragrant, from the word prosperous journey. And Odia's life was not very fragrant at this point, nor was her spiritual journey very prosperous at this time. We have women deaconesses. You remember Phoebe in Romans 16.1. But we never have women bishops, elders, or pastor teachers. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.12 through 14 that a woman is not to usurp authority over a man. The context is pastor teacher over the church. And he gives two reasons. Because Adam was created first. He's the head of the race. And two, Eve was deceived, not Adam. He transgressed. So they're not cultural reasons. They're biblical and historical reasons. So don't let none of these PhDs pervert the context. Call me what you may. I don't really care. It's historical and it's doctrinal. Syntyche meant with fate. It comes from the word fortune, acquaintance, or fortunate acquaintance, or to meet with. Syntyche's life was neither in good faith at the moment, nor was she in acquaintance to meet with Odia. So their names really um, contradict who they really were to be. The two names are emphatic in the Greek text being placed before the implorement. Literally, Yodia, I implore. Syntyche, I implore. The urgency notice is marked by two things. The individual plead directed to each woman by Paul near the end of the letter. Paul is dealing with all this stuff and everything else, and, 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 and apparently this situation is it's probably pretty serious, or he wouldn't have mentioned it. And as his letter is being read in the church, they're almost there at the last chapter. They're coming to, um, well, you know, we know the last chapter, but close to the end. And these two are probably saying, Whew, thank God he didn't say nothing. And all of a sudden, bam, he nails them. Isn't that the way you are? Oh, I hope God, and then, you know, and God nails us. If we're open to the Lord, then he's going to deal with us because he loves us. The urgency, again, marked by these two things. The individual plea directed to each woman. Here towards the end, I implore Uriah. I implore Syntyche. I, the one who established the church, the one who loves you, the one who cares for you. The one that's praying for you here in my cell. Wow. The repetition of the word implore. Parakaleo is literally to come alongside and call. It's the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. In the context, the idea is one of entreating, begging, or summoning. The word is repeated twice again, one to each woman, both in the indicative, present, active, ongoing, continuous. Now notice the Apostle Paul declared the problem was that these two women were at odds and divided. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul therefore pleaded with both women that they be of the same mind in Christ. Now, if he asks such a thing, then it implies that we can do this. That it's not anything 
unnatural. Uh, there's, it's not anything that one person, two people may not be able to do. It's a general command to the whole body of Christ, but specifically to these two ladies here. The word mime, for Neo, is to direct one's mind to a thing, the same thing, and it's found 13 times in the epistle. What was their problem? Disunity. Where does it take place? The heart. Where does it be cultivated and make worse? The mind. You got to change your mind, ladies, he says. You're not thinking right. When you don't think right, you don't act right. You find that out in life? Hmm. To seek or strive for the same kind of understanding and disposition. So it's not just cognitive information, but it's an attitude, a posture of heart that stands behind this process of thinking. Paul does not mean the following. He does not mean Christians cannot think for themselves and that they just simply have to conform. That's not what he's talking about. He does not mean that a Christian, that we can't disagree on some things. We're going to disagree on a lot of things. But when it comes to the things of Christ, we shouldn't disagree at all. You might like Chevy more than Ford. That's fine. It's your money. You may like this, and I think it's terrible. No big deal. If it has nothing to do with Christ, it's none of my business, right? Doesn't matter. But Paul does mean the following. He meant we are to approach our lives with the mind of Christ, one of humility and service to one another. As he did in chapter 2, verse 1 through 8, and in chapter 2, verse 17 through 30. He meant we are to recognize our mission in life to obey and to glorify Christ, not ourselves. Chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. He means the two women were walking after their carnal minds and wills, disrupting the unity between themselves and perhaps certainly with others in the body. If you're the man, you come home from work, if you've had a bad day, and you come in through that front door like King Kong, everybody's real quiet. We affect one another. It's just the way it is. He means they were not standing fast in the Lord, but in their own flesh. The old sin nature will rear its ugly head if we let it. The old man must be reckoned dead daily. Romans 6, 6, it was reckoned dead at when we were born again, in verse 11, we must continue to reckon the dead every instant. How many homes and marriages have gone through difficult times or destroyed completely due to their carnality that could have been preserved and blossomed? How many churches have been totally divided by carnal people and destroyed? Because of self-interest and pride and an evil heart. Happens every day, ladies and gentlemen, within Christian circles. The church is made up of people, therefore it will never be perfect. If you're looking for the perfect church, don't join it when you find it because you'll ruin it. As long as people are in church... There's no perfect church or no perfect people. Each believer has two natures, their natural sin nature and the spiritual divine nature. 
the old man, the new man, the outer man, the inner man, the life of the flesh, the life of the spirit. We get to choose, as I said. It's a choice. Peter puts it this way, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. As his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. That means God has equipped me for everything and anything that he will allow, everything that will come to me, and I can handle it in a way that I can glorify him. I have no excuse. Whether I do or not, that's a different matter. But he has equipped me for me to bring glory to him in every situation. Everything that brings glory to God, he gets the credit. Everything that is bad, I get the credit. Simple. The church is made up of various age levels, as you know. They're young and new believers. The mature spiritual adults, there are the aged spiritual fathers and mothers. And the Bible gives that, that sort of threefold category, though they're in between each one. First John 2.13 says, I write to you fathers because you have known him from who was from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. Then in 1 John 2.14 says, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. So you have children and then they become an adult and then you become old. Three stages. There's some in-betweens there. But it kind of just gives you, the, you have a beginning and you have an ending. You're born and you will die. And hopefully what occupies between your death and your birth is more than a hyphen. Especially for Christ. The church has different ages in Christ and therefore they are to grow, develop, mature in every age level. By the word of God, prayer. Serving in the church to reach your spiritual potential. There is no exception. There is none that is a disadvantage spiritually regarding this. There is no one that is just sit in the church and do nothing. Not one. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4. Uh, for the equipping, the, the purpose of the church, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, meaning mature, and to the measure of the stature of fullness in Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro with every, carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. Your body got ligaments, muscles. They're all joined together. They do their part. They're connected. Grow, develop, mature. Baby comes home. He's got all the parts, but he's not very coordinated. Not very strong. Can't talk, can't walk. But give him a little bit of time. He'll start sprouting, developing. He'll get strong, everything else. Same thing in Christ. No different. The church body individually, no matter how old or mature we may be in the Lord, we can lean and trust our flesh and be carnal. I don't care if you're 20, 30, 40 years in the Lord, 50 years in the Lord. 
we have the potential. Due to our pride, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, you fill in the blank. Paul addressing the Corinthians, they were real carnal. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, 11 through 13 says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, there it is again, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may perfectly join together in the same mind and in the same judgment, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. So you can be a Christian and be 100% beef. You can hang out with Oscar Meyer. Carnal. You still focus on your own will, your own way, and, you know, people don't like it tough. And have you grown? Are you developing? Are you maturing in Christ Jesus? Paul to the Romans says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them for those who do such things. Do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and they smooth words and flattering speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Romans 16, 17, and 18. See, we have the mind of Christ, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the key. We have to put it on. 1 Corinthians 2.16, you have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2.5, put it on. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. So Christian unity can be disrupted by carnal believers. Third and last, notice verse 3. Christian unity can be restored by believers. The Apostle Paul placed the responsibility of restoring unity on those who are spiritually mature. And I urge you also, true companion. Now, Paul turns to a particular person to resolve the matter of this unity between these two ladies. He urged the individual um, Paul had implored the ladies and the word urge here means to request or simply ask. He depended on the mature saints in the church to handle the body life situations of the church members. Paul ended the disunity with Barnabas and Mark, remember. He knows what he's talking about. He had gone through things like that. Paul identifies the person by the pronoun you, followed by true companion. The singular pronoun you does not help us know who he was. There's no identification of who he is. The qualifier, true companion, simply indicates his character. True means legitimate or genuine. This does not imply the woman was not true, or the women there, only that they were in need of assistance to reconcile them. Companion is masculine, by the way, and means yoke fella, a genuine believer, and partners, what he's talking about. Some take this as a proper name and like, sort of like a pun on the name like Onesimus. But it's doubtful. The word simply describes one who worked alongside others in the ministry of the church. Notice the Apostle Paul made his proclamation based on the position and the involvement of the women in ministry. Paul already pleaded in loving affection. So now, he commanded this mature spiritual companion to deal 
with and resolve the matter. Help these two women. The word help means to take hold together, to aid and assist in whatever effects were going on already. It's apparent that nothing's being resolved. You as a parent, you know, you try to let your kids handle some things, and after a different, after a set amount of time, you see it's not going anywhere, it's getting worse, you step in. All right, you go to your room, you go to your room. You have to step in. The tense is the imperative present middle voice. He himself had to do this right away to bring unity to these two ladies. This was not a suggestion to the true companion, but a serious obligation. The person was to be a third party to deal with the broken unity of Yodia and Syntyche, to act as a mediator, if you will, between the two women who were of mature age, but acting immature. Okay? A third pair of eyes and ears in an unbiased way to resolve the problem. Also to point out the damage and the consequences to others in the body by their bad example. You as a parent, you tell you, if it's the older son or daughter, your, your brother's watching. You have the greater responsibility. You're older. You're teaching them. Right? So... We don't know how many people were stumbled, what was going on, but that's always the case. To remind them of their master's example of humble service. Philippians 2.5 Being God, he didn't consider robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself of his glory and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Wow. Paul understood the two women had a great accountability towards God and the other believers in the body of Christ. Listen to him. Who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. So the two women had labored in the gospel so they had the potential to stumble many. And they work with Paul as we're going to see. People are to keep their eyes on Jesus. But they still look up to those who are in leadership. It's just the way it is. Young believers are stumbled. In a greater way when they see the failures of those who are older in Christ or even in ministry and leadership. The two women had labored in the gospel, notice with visible and notable people, but were not following their example. Paul, whose name means little one, the apostle of the Gentiles, the very one who established the church. Clement, whose name means mild and merciful. We don't know who he is. Some, by tradition, believe is the Bishop of Clement of Rome, but we can't be certain. And then Paul's fellow workers, indicating unity and humility in the work of the gospel. Others. Of course, you have to include Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Silas, and other ones. He doesn't name them, but all those. So these ladies had some high privilege in what they were doing and, and, and they were acting this way and, and, and Paul wants this thing stopped. The word labored there means to strive together side by side with strenuous, agonizing effort. It's borrowed from the gladiator arena. So these are faithful, godly women but they're out to lunch right now. They're just carnal as they can be. Been there? 
Now we better change the subject. The tense is the indicative error is active from the past to the present. They work hard for the Lord. What happened here? How long has this been going on? This word is found only one other time in the New Testament. It's in the first chapter, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then he says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together, there it is, for the faith of the gospel. The two women could have been with Lydia at the riverside when Paul came to Philippi. Could have been two of them there. Remember when there were many women there? We don't know. But by what he says, they fall into the same company as Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul. Labors of the gospel. Notice, lastly, here the Apostle Paul pronounced the registrar of the united names of all the believers whose names are written in the book of life. The book of life and living, um, the book of living is found in various uh, times in the scriptures, Exodus 32, 32, Psalm 69, 28, Daniel, Philippians here, Hebrews 12, 23, the book of Revelation about five or six times. Now, the book of life is apparently the one where all the names of all who will be saved are written. The living not the dead. The concept of being blotted out of the book of life troubles some people, just as um, free will and predestination causes some to err. But um, they're, all, um, they're all biblical. Moses asked God to blot out his name out of the book of life if God would not forgive the people of Israel. And God said, listen, Mo. I will blot out whoever sins against me, Exodus 32, 32, and 33. Okay? The psalmist in Psalm 69, 28 affirms the blotting out of names. Listen, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Jesus promised the overcomer that he would not blot his name out of the book of life in Revelation 3, 5. The allusion there is uh, to the wool industry at Sardis regarding um, those citizens whose names were removed from a public list if they re approached the gods with a garment that was soiled or stained or if they were convicted of a crime. What a great illustration in the context. The problem is with our human reasoning understanding because we see some people backslide or walk away from Christ. But God knows from the beginning who's going to be saved, who's not. Certainly they're not lost because God didn't give them a chance. The book of life or the book of the living is for all who God created. For he died for all, yet only those who come live and abide by faith in Christ Jesus. Only their names will be left, and those who do not abide will be blotted out. Simple. What's the problem with that? God's not going to say, oh, I didn't know, I, I blotted his name, I didn't know he was going to make it. You think God's going to say that? I don't think so. You remember Paul acted as a meteor between Onesimus and Philemon, a runaway slave. This is what he's asking this true companion to do. The mature leaders of the church bear the responsibility to oversee, protect, and resolve difficulties in the church only when people refuse or cannot resolve them. It is to be done in humility, agape love, and according to the word of God. Matthew 18 gives us the principle. You have something. Someone has something against you. The responsibility is on you, the innocent party. To go with them by one. Then by twos. Then by threes. Then the church. Okay. It's not. Well I didn't do it. 
the innocent party has the obligation, not the guilty. The guilty is blind. Okay? Interesting. It seems like the church have torn out Matthew 18. No person is exempt from being confronted when there's things going on, attitudes and actions that disrupt and hinder the unity of the body of Christ or it contradicts Scripture. Galatians 6, 1-5 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be what? Tempted. The goal is to restore unity and avoid damage to the person and the church. So confrontation is not for mere castigation, but for restoration. Do not rebuke an elder man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters, with all purity. First Timothy five two. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. First Timothy five twenty. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Second Timothy four two. Do not receive an accusation against another except from two or three witnesses. First Timothy five nineteen. And physical evidence. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Titus 1.13 Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Titus 2.15 Peter tells us that the judgment must begin at the house of God. 1 Peter 5.17 In fact, the psalmist says this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head of Aaron, running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down to the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessings of life forevermore. The Holy Spirit is the one who creates unity, ladies and gentlemen. We disrupt it. We disrupt it. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you are called with all loneliness, gentleness, with all longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, listen, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to stay out of the way of the Spirit, not disrupt the unity of the Spirit by walking in the flesh, be it in your home, be it in the church. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.19 Why? Because there's also much is given, much more is required. Luke 12.48 Teachers will receive greater judgment. James 3.1 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, Matthew 5, 9. Wow. Christian unity can be restored by believers. And so Paul has dealt in this very specific exhortation regarding Christian unity. Characterized by these three things. A real scenario. Christian unity can be only and can exist only by depending on Jesus by believers. Christian unity can be disrupted by carnal believers and Christian unity can be restored by believers. The Bible gives you solutions. <laughs> Very clear and simple, straightforward. We don't lack the information. We lack the will. The willingness to do the will of God. All the time. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you. We pray tonight that you just speak to us, Lord. And Father, no one's exempt. And Father, we just thank you for your mercies through the years in our life and here in this church. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. Right where you sit, you can accept Him. If you believe Jesus Christ is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you can call upon Him and He will save you right now. Simple prayer of repentance. Right where you sit, this is your prayer to be saved. You can repeat it right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name.
I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.